This week we're talking about Kauai and the art of tripod maintenance, and you're listening to the Landscape Photography Podcast. Long time no see everyone. As always, thank you so much for tuning in this week. This week, we're going to kind of reflect on some of the things that we learned on our Kauai workshop this past week, as well as take some questions that came in on the Facebook group. If you're not already a member of the Facebook group, you can find it over there. Just do a search for Landscape Photography Podcast, and we have a conversation there. I occasionally get questions from everybody. It's been a really cool group to interact with each other and get feedback on photos and such. Before we get started this week, I do want to let you guys know that I have two spots, maybe three available on the 2018 Iceland workshop that I'm going to be doing with Thor. We're going to be photographing ice caves and seascapes and mountains and waterfalls and with a little bit of luck, Aurora. It's going to be an adventure. If you want to jump in on that, you're running out of time and you better do so quickly. You can find that over at nickpagephotography.com and get signed up there. Okay, let's sit back and relax and talk all about photographing paradise and the art of tripod maintenance. So I've said this every single time. Every time I go to Kauai, I try to devise a way to not have to go home because it is literally just paradise. When you envision paradise, you envision Kauai. It is called the Garden Island for a reason. It is absolutely beautiful. If you can picture an island that is surrounded by giant, beautiful mountains, palm trees, jungles, breathtaking seascapes, and then, heck, let's throw in the Grand Canyon for for fun. That is Kauai. One of the things that I like so much about Kauai is that it's not like the other islands where you have big cities and and some of the islands just feel like Las Vegas on an island. It feels very resorty. Kauai is not like that. Kauai is nothing but smaller towns, tiny little villages. And because of that, there's a lot more nature to, to be had and to be seen. There's huge swaths of the island that are pristine jungles that have no houses. All that's there is a hiking trail through them. And then it's home to some of the most breathtaking seascapes and mountains and just absolutely beautiful. You have to look up photos if you've never seen what Kauai looks like. So the workshop I just got done leading, we shot lots and lots of seascapes. By the end of the trip, we were kind of seascaped out, to be honest. We shot uh, every sunrise, every sunset, photographing moving water and, and seascapes. And we got some amazing, amazing sunsets and some really good sunrises as well. Uh, the downside to shooting all of those seascapes is that we were down in the water, our tripods were down in the salt water, and as a result, we suffered from corrosion like you would not believe. When I got home, even though I'd been cleaning my tripod throughout the trip, it was just a crusty barnacle of a thing. It was not functioning well at all anymore. I had white corrosion in every single joint, and so yesterday I spent the better part of three hours taking apart every piece on my tripod and scrubbing them and cleaning them and uh, doing my best to get all of the corrosion out of there. And now it's working like a brand new tripod. If you've never taken apart a tripod before, uh, the first time is always a little bit intimidating because there's that worry that you're not going to be able to put it back together again. 
And the cool thing about the age that we live in is if you have a tripod that anybody else shoots, there's probably a video online showing how to take it apart, put it back together, and to properly clean it. Because I use Really Ride Stuff tripods, uh, the people over at Really Ride Stuff, they have like a whole set of tutorials showing how to take apart each piece and how to put it back together. Incredibly useful for last night's endeavor of getting rid of all that sea salt, but I'm sure that there's similar videos for all the different manufacturers out there. So step one, and we were doing this while we were still on the island, is towards the middle of the day, we would we would go grab an iced tea, sit out by the pool in our flip-flops and 75 degrees, and we would take apart our tripods and have little tripod cleaning parties. And we all needed to do it because the sand and the salt gets in the in the threads of your tripod even if they're not submerged in the water all of that splashing that happens it gets into those threads and what happens is you get grit in your threads and it'll no longer properly tighten down all the way and so you'll end up with tripod legs that that you can't lock down anymore and they're kind of like you know half locked and they don't lock into place so what we would do is we would take apart the legs of the tripod and clean out those threads and then just put them back together without any kind of uh, grease. They are designed to have some kind of lubricant in there. That way you can tighten them down a little bit more easily. They come, you know, unthreaded more easily. And we were able to do a fairly good job of cleaning it, but not as good as needed done. So what I did last night was I actually took the tripod legs off up at the shoulder and got rid of all the corrosion that was happening inside where the leg angle joints actually come together and I cleaned every single part. A couple of things that you're going to need if you're going to do this yourself if you've been shooting around seascapes is you're going to need some rubbing alcohol. The higher the concentration, you know, 90 to 95% rubbing alcohol is a really good cleaning solvent. It does a really good job of cleaning what you're trying to clean and then evaporating and not leaving any kind of residue. You're going to need some kind of toothbrush or scrub brush. Also, for my particular tripod, I was using Scotch-Brite pads because there's a couple washers that were in there that were just so caked with corrosion that I had to like literally scrub them and rebuff them down to the metal. They're brass, and even though they're supposed to be that kind of coppery color, they were actually like snow white and had a thick layer of corrosion on them. So I took all those pieces apart, I cleaned them all up, I got them looking brand new, and then I took just a little bit of bearing grease and I put it both on the threads that are on my twist locks, as well as the little kind of shaft thing that goes through the shoulder piece. I'm not sure exactly what that's called, but it's what the two Allen bolts uh, bolt into. And it, that piece needs to be able to spin freely. That way, when you open and close your legs, that's not working like a ratchet and slowly tightening down your leg or making it floppy and loose. So after I got it all cleaned up, it was like a brand new tripod. And that's the thing is that if you're going to have an expensive tripod, it's going to require a little bit of maintenance. Otherwise, you were making a very expensive choice <laughs> because uh, it'll just totally destroy the way that your tripod functions. And this is the kind of thing that people that photograph ocean scenes have to deal with, that people that have to photograph mountain scenes do not. You don't get your tripod completely full of sand and sea salt by photographing mountains. And there was a few guys on the trip that were just not used to the way that sea salt corrodes everything. It is awful, awful stuff. And this goes for like the little nooks and crannies on your cameras as well. Uh, my camera got splashed multiple times 
and I'm holding my hand right now and I see that like my little camera strap loop has corrosion all around it. I'm sure that if I took my L bracket off right now, I would find corrosion underneath. So that's going to be what I do tonight as I watch television is take off my L bracket, find all those little nooks and crannies on my camera that got splashed and has sea salt corrosion and try to get rid of that stuff because it is nasty, nasty, awful stuff. Suffice it to say that Kauai was amazing, not only because it was 75 degrees and partly cloudy with a chance of rain every day, so it was just beautiful weather for photography, but it was an incredibly fruitful trip as well. We got good light so many different times uh, on the trip that I know that we all came home with portfolio material. There was a fair bit of adventure on this particular trip. Most of our shoots involved kind of hiking through the jungle down to the ocean and and uh, I, people were slipping and falling down in the mud and we were walking around on lots of uneven rock and stuff, the kind of stuff that landscape photographers have to do. But in my opinion, th that sense of adventure really adds to a trip like this. You have a, your adventure in the morning and in the evening and during the mid afternoon, people were out snorkeling and kayaking or just sipping Mai Tais on the beach. It was such a good time and it's such a cool thing to to break up a winter. There I am photographing standing in water and flip-flops and 75 degrees and then I come home and I'm looking out to a whole bunch of snow out my window right now. So it was such a welcomed piece of paradise that there's a part of me that wishes that I could just figure out how to live there because uh, what a cool place, what a beautiful place and what and also kind of one of those places that really goes under the radar because the, the whole time we were out shooting, we ran into maybe two other photographers during that whole week. Granted, there were there were tourists, but there weren't other photographers. And that's just crazy and mind boggling to me because it is so beautiful. And if there were places that looked like that here in on the mainland, uh, they would just be inundated with photographers. But be, because Kauai is a little bit of work and a little bit of an expense to get to, it kind of flies under the radar and I love that. I love being able to go to places in the morning and having it completely to myself. So my group was pretty much the only photographers on the island and that that's awesome. On the first day I landed and got off the airplane, I got to do a helicopter tour that kind of focused on the Nepali coast, which is the northwest coastline of Kauai and it's only accessible by a really long, difficult hiking trail or by Zodiac or by helicopter. And I took a helicopter tour that this was the first photography helicopter tour I have ever done. And it was quite the experience. It, the, the pilot was flying just like five to 10 feet over these cliffs. It was so, so cool. We were flying with the doors off. So we were kind of angled out the door, very, very windy and exhilarating and exciting, but man, what a place to do a helicopter tour. There's just giant waterfalls all, all over the place. Movies like Jurassic Park and King Kong, they're all filmed in Kauai because there's these massive uh, waterfalls that are out in these remote parts. And it makes for really cool uh, aerial photography. So that was just an amazing experience. Some of the things that I learned from doing a helicopter tour is that, for one, I tried to take two camera bodies and it just didn't work very well. I thought that I was going to be liking most of my telephoto shots, you know, kind of zooming in and doing like little vignettes, but I found that I liked all of my wide angle shots the most. The problem with the wide angle shots were that I was getting propellers and like the rails 
that the helicopter sits on when it's on the ground. I was getting both of those in my frame. So I ended up having to do a whole lot of cloning in most of my photos to get out the props and to get the, the rails off the bottom of my frame. And because the propellers are moving so fast and some places are easier to clone than others, when I was taking those shots, I was motor driving, you know, going to try to get as many different frames with those props in different, in different positions. That way, hopefully I could get it in the sky going through the sky, which is much easier to clone out than if it's going through like the mountain peak or something. So I was making sure to take plenty of photos, uh, when I was doing my helicopter trip. Overall, it was an amazing experience. I highly recommend going to Kauai yourself. I know I'm going to be leading a workshop there every winter from now on because that was one of the best weeks of my life. It was just so warm, so beautiful. Because we went before Christmas break, there weren't too many tourists and there were hardly any photographers. And it's just literally paradise on earth. It's gorgeous. Okay, so now let's take a few questions that came in over on the Landscape Photography Podcast Facebook group. First question is from John. He says he was recently given a ProStylus printer and he was wondering if I had any tips for printing my own prints as far as sharpening, types of paper, and that kind of stuff. Unfortunately, I really don't have hardly any experience with doing my own printing. It's something I would love to do, but it's something that I've never really taken the time to do that and printers are kind of expensive and stuff. So I've, I generally send my prints out. Um, but I know Mark Metternich has tons and tons of content about this very thing. It's something he's very passionate about. And I think he just released a, uh, a free video on sharpening for print. Uh, that's kind of a teaser for his tutorial. I know he's got a whole tutorial series on it, but I think he has some free content as well. So I would steer you in that direction to try to find something. Ricardo asks, He's getting ready to go to Kauai in April. What helicopter company offers the doors off flight? I believe the name of the company was Jason Carter or Jack Carter or something like that. I'll put a link in the show notes for the specific company that I went through, but you definitely have to do a doors off type tour. That way you can shoot wide angle and you're not trying to lean out the door to not get the door in the frame. Uh, the way they strap you into those things is very difficult to move. You're like in a five point harness. So it's very important to have a doors off tour. And I think he's the only one. So I'll put a link in the show notes uh, for that information. Frank Gallagher asks, and I think this is tongue in cheek. What encouragement can you give a photographer who sees your work and toss their camera and gear away in envy and frustration? <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's tongue in cheek. Uh, but the thing is, like, and this is just a good skill to learn, is that when you see photography that you deem better than your own, is to try to pick it apart and figure out what it is that you like better about their photography than your own photography at the moment. And in the beginning, like, that is a very daunting list of things because, you know, it's like, well, I like everything about that photo better than my photos. But you have to kind of just pick it apart and pick it apart one thing at a time. Like the composition of this particular photo is just so much better than what I've been doing. The next time I go out, I'm going to really focus on trying to get a more interesting composition or or maybe it's something like the way that they controlled their colors and the, the way their colors are just so much better than a lot of mine. I know in the beginning, I felt like some of my photos just looked like vomit across the screen because there was like every color of the rainbow. And nowadays I try to be a lot more thoughtful about the color that I do include in my photo. And it doesn't have to be every color of the rainbow. Sometimes just a couple dominant colors will come away with a more successful photo. So looking at the, the work of others and picking apart what it is that you like 
so much about their photography and just going by baby steps one thing at a time that's the thing is baby steps are much more achievable and if you make enough of them you'll get to your final destination you can get feel very overwhelmed by thinking big picture about stuff like this and everybody started somewhere we all sucked in the beginning everybody sucks in the beginning it's just about uh, starting to take those little baby steps in the direction that you want to go Brian asks, my question is that in the last year of your photography, where have you seen the most improvement? Was it in composition, processing style, and why? Um, I would say I've definitely seen an improvement in my processing. I'm a lot more thoughtful about things like color and uh, exposure and drawing the eye through a photo. That's something that I'm always working on is you know, trying to have a path through my photo that I'm where I'm leading the, the eye through the photo. But I'm also focusing on composition as well. I feel like I've I've seen an improvement there as well where my photos don't feel quite so random. It used to be that some of my photos just felt like I was taking a photo of of randomville you know and nowadays when i take a photo i feel like my photos are coming away with more of a point like it's very clear why i took this particular photo because this cool thing was happening here by really honing in my composition it's very clear why i took that photo but in the beginning when my composition wasn't as strong sometimes that point would be lost the biggest change in my photography though has been with color where I've been restricting the colors that I include into my frame a whole lot more than I used to. And if I even look at photography of myself from one year ago, uh, there's a huge color difference. And my colors are much more subdued, uh, a little bit more tasteful, I like to think. So I would say um, post-processing and color is where I've seen the most improvement. Next question is, how do you take a Mavic to the Hawaiian Islands? In Norway, he flies with caution and things are pretty good, but he knows that in the U.S. it's kind of a different game with the FAA. There was lots and lots of no drone signs in Hawaii, pretty much like there is in everywhere in the United States that's worth flying a drone. You're going to see a no drone sign. And that's the really unfortunate part of just how many drones are floating around out there. They have to really crack down on the number of places that you can fly a drone. Another thing is that in Kauai, there are so many helicopter tours that, you know, that's another reason why you can't really just fly a drone everywhere is because there's helicopter tours and most of those really scenic places, you know, like most national parks and and large state parks, there's going to be those helicopter tours and you don't want a helicopter to run into a drone and then bad things happen. You have to be a little bit more clever about where you fly. You have to not just go for the big iconic place like you can't go to Yosemite National Park and and fly your drone through the canyons. You just can't do that. You have to be a little bit more clever and focus on focus on those places that are interesting. The reason that they're interesting is because it's somewhere that you can't physically go by foot. Some of the most fascinating drone photography and video that I see is just from places that are completely inaccessible by any other way. That way you're taking an original uh, photo or video and you're doing it in a place where there's probably not restrictions because people aren't there because it's not accessible. Those are some of my recommendations for where to fly a drone. Patrick asks, I'd love to know how you made your move into making a business. I know you've spoken about how you got into photography in the past, but he's finding himself wanting to go a bit further with photography beyond just being a hobbyist. 
So when I decided to try to make a business of photography, it was because I was doing so much photography that I just felt like I could not physically do both the amount of photography I was doing and my day job. And by that point, I already had enough paying gigs happening that I felt like I was kind of losing money by going to my day job because I could make more money by doing photography. And that was really the point when I was like, you know, I'm just going to do this photography thing because I like actually enjoy it (laughs) as opposed to my day job. And that made the choice to go full time a whole lot easier for me because I knew that I already had money coming in. The thing is, you have to have those ducks in a row before you make that leap. And it's a whole lot harder if you're just going to be, you know, a nature or landscape photographer because there's so fewer ways of actually making money. Pretty much with landscape photography, you can sell stock, which you would have to sell a whole lot of stock to make a lot of money. You can sell prints and calendars and stuff, but that a lot of times is going to be hit and miss. You'll have good months, you'll have bad months. And even on my best months, it was nowhere near enough to make ends meet. Or you can be an educator. There's a huge market for education because there are so many landscape photographers and they all want to know what, you know, the top people know. So education is a big deal, but before you can do the education, you have to be a good photographer. You have to be a decent speaker. There's a lot of criteria to be one of those educators. Not to mention you have to be known by people in order to do that. And so it's, that's kind of a specialized market. And I hate I hate to say this because this is going to affect me. But as there are more and more really good educators out there, it's going to devalue just like every other part of photography. Back in the day when there were very few people selling tutorials, those people could charge even more and deliver a little bit less. But nowadays it's getting more and more competitive because there are so many people uh, selling tutorials that you have to be offering something that nobody else is, or you have to sell it a little bit cheaper, or you have to deliver a little bit more. It's just more and more competitive and that's going to eventually drive the value of it down. You're going to have to deliver more and charge less. And that trend can only go on for so long before It's no longer going to be a very viable way of making money. And that's unfortunate because that's one of the things that I do, but at least I'm smart enough to acknowledge that. Jordan asks, what are the odds that in five years, luminosity masking will be viewed like HDR is as a little too realish and just a trend? I sincerely doubt that luminosity masking or using luminosity masks will ever be viewed that way because there are so many different ways of using them. You can use luminosity masks and not have anybody even realize that you did. For example, I do that a lot just when adding contrast. Nobody would know if I was doing it through a luminosity mask or just painting it in. Nobody knows uh, the method that you're using that particular luminosity mask and it doesn't really provide a look. But what I do think is that at some point, there's going to be so much automation coming out that doing it the way that we currently do it will be seen as old school and a little bit uh, manual and archaic because there's so many manual things that we have to do. We have to create the luminosity mask. Sometimes we alter the luminosity mask and then we paint through that luminosity mask. Um, And then you have things like Lightroom that is starting to come out with some of that range masking, which I have been playing around with. That's another question that's kind of came in quite a few times is what do I think of that range masking? Um, It's definitely not very sophisticated. It, It doesn't give you any form of like 
uh, specific control. It's just kind of like guesswork. For that reason, I don't find it terribly useful. Uh, I know I have friends that are just super impressed by it, but me personally, I'm super unimpressed. It just, it feels a little bit like um, using a stick as a wrench as opposed to using a wrench as a wrench. It's, it's like kind of mimics what you can do, but not really. But maybe in another five years, there will be a viable alternative that's much simpler than using luminosity masks right now, but right now there's nothing close. Then the second question from Jordan is, after the Mark Metternich print discussion, who is my favorite printer and print medium? I use a whole lot of Bay Photo. I really like Bay Photo for metal prints and paper prints. A lot of the stuff through them is just a really high quality. It's not the cheapest, it's not the fastest, but the quality is very consistent and very, very high quality. Uh, my favorite print medium is actually acrylic right now. I love the way acrylic prints look. I really want to check out uh, the Lumichrome that Mark was talking about. I've just never taken the time to actually go through the process of ordering through them because it's not like you send them a file, it gets delivered to you. What you do is you send them a file, they look at your file, and then they email you back with a list of things that they need different about the file because they're very hands-on about making sure you come away with the best the best print. The problem with that is that like I, I don't have a whole lot of time, so like I send them the file, they email me back, and I'm like, oh, this is so much work. I'm going to do something else. <laughs> and it's because I don't sell very many prints. But if I was really serious about printing, and I think that uh, the Lumichrome from Nevada Art Printers would be my favorite medium, but because I'm a little bit lazy and I just want that instant gratification of sending a file and then being done, um, I've been going with Bay Photo. Adam asks, I'd be very interested to hear your process for exposure blending and focus stacking, both from an in-the-field perspective and a post-processing perspective. Okay, so envision this problem. You have this foreground that you're super close to, so you need to focus stack it. You've got a mountain in the background, but then you've got that bright sunset happening behind the mountain. So not only do you have a depth of field problem where you're you know, four inches away from your foreground, you got a mountain in the background, you want both sharp, but you also have a dynamic range problem where you can't expose for the sky and still maintain enough shadow detail. So the way that I will shoot this scene, I will start with my brighter frames for the foreground. You know, a frame that is blowing out the highlights in the sky, but that's okay. I just want my histogram to show that I have that left side all the way off the edge. So I'm maintaining all the shadow detail I need. So I'll start with my foreground. I'll focus on the foreground, focus a little deeper into the frame, focus a little deeper in the frame, take all of those shots. It depends on your focal length and how close you are and stuff, but typically that'll be like four to five frames. And then I'll focus on that background. And then once I get that background frame sharp, then I will start to manually uh, darken down my exposure using shutter speed and I'll darken down and expose for the sky. If I'm shooting a sun star, sometimes that will require two shots for the sky, but let's just say it's just a big sunset, there's no sun in the frame, so I, I will speed up my shutter speed, get a frame where I have all of my highlight detail for that sky. Okay, so you're with me this far. Next, we're going to take all of these photos, open them up as layers in Photoshop. The first thing that I'm going to do is exposure blend that background frame where I have my two frames that are focused to infinity. I'm going to blend in that nice sky with that background frame. So I have the reason I'm doing that first is so those two frames line up perfectly. 
the edge of our mountain lines up perfectly. So I exposure blend those two together and then I take that frame and all of my foreground frames, I auto align them and then I auto blend them in Photoshop. Sometimes I'll manually blend them, but let's just assume that Photoshop works. And then by this point you have full dynamic range of your scene because we've exposure blended that darker sky, but we also have full depth of field where we have focus stacked our foreground all the way to our background. And that way we get full dynamic range and full depth of field. And that's the easiest way to both shoot it and post process it. And then you use that as your starting point to start editing your frame. Okay, the last question for today, excluding wearing shorts and flip flops and chopper rides, what was the best part of the trip? Um, man, those were pretty much the best parts right there. Maybe it was the Mai Tais on the beach or maybe it was the warm bath water that was the, the ocean. Uh, no, I think that the best part has to be that there's just such a variety to shoot in Kauai. There's the giant canyon that you have, Waimea Canyon, which is called the Grand Canyon of Hawaii. 3,000 feet deep, this massive canyon with red dirt and green vegetation and waterfalls. It's absolutely massive and beautiful. Then you have the beautiful mountains that are on the interior of the island. You have the Nepali coast with its towering cliffs dumping into the ocean that is this vibrant green and blue. It is just such a beautiful place and such a diverse place. It's not just one type of photography you're going to do there. Typically, when you think of Hawaii photos, you think of palm tree, sandy beach, and blue water. Uh, but this place is so much more diverse and, and, and rugged than that. There's so many nice lava shelves going out in the ocean. It is gorgeous. And there's a reason that I lead a workshop there. I absolutely love it. Someday I might be a beach bum living in Kauai. And I think that would be an absolutely wonderful existence. All right. Thank you guys so much. Hopefully there was a nugget in here somewhere. Uh, something that you guys can use in your own photography. I look forward to seeing you guys in the next episode. Take it easy. Bye-bye.